So, uh, happy Mother's Day again to all of you mothers. Um, it's, it's a joy to have you guys in our lives. I know um, a lot of you guys don't just mother your children, but you mother us husbands as well. So, we're grateful for that as well. Um, <laughs> hey, easy in the back back there. She's, she's a rowdy one. Um, so we're still heading through uh, the Gospel of Mark. Um, we're going to be in there today. But I want to start out with a, a, a little question. Like, do you guys ever have one of those relationships in your life? Maybe you have multiple relationships like that where you just kind of feel like that person is out to get you. Um, no matter what it is, uh, it seems like everything you do around that person is kind of scrutinized under a fine-tooth comb. Like, like this person is just really um, has this um, pursuant personality in trying to uh, trip you up, stumble you up, and get you kind of um, rattled in things. Um, it could be a boss. It could be a coworker, family members, neighbors. Whatever it is, I think we encounter these times in our lives where you just got that vibe like, man, this person's just kind of out to get me. Um, when I was writing this, I was like, I used to feel that a lot more before I got sober. It's weird how that went away <laughs> with sobriety. So I'm like, that, I don't feel that way as much. But there are still these interactions and situations in our life where, you know, the person might just not... They have their own best interest in mind more than yours. And so there's that, that pursuant um, action that they take in your day-to-day -day interactions where they're just kind of out to get you. And I think we can say it's safe to say up to this point that Jesus can probably relate to that type of feeling. So here we are, we're going to be wrapping up the end of chapter 2. So we're, we're two chapters deep into this. First, chapter 1, not so much, but in chapter 2, the religious elite of his time, they're there, man, and they are trying to stumble him up. They are just kind of out to get him. They are repeatedly trying to set him up or trap him in some sort of action or speech or, or whatever it is to try and disprove any notion of him being the awaited Messiah. And so um, we're going to see that multiple times. Like I said, we've already seen throughout chapter two, um, the story towards the beginning where the paralyzed man was lowered down through the roof. He lo he's lowered down uh, for Jesus to heal him by his friends. And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And instead of looking at this uh, a great miracle that this man who has been paralyzed since birth and he, he can now get up and walk and th this joyous thing that everybody around was probably like, man, I should be so happy for this thing. The religious elite in the room are thinking, who has the authority to forgive sin? Only God has authority to forgive sin. So before they even voice their disdain in Jesus, he read it in their, in their hearts, it says in Scripture in that moment. We travel a little further down, uh, chapter 2. Uh, Jesus calls the tax collector, Levi, to follow him. And Levi's like, cool, let's do this. He throws this huge feast. He invites all of his tax collector buddies, all of his homeboys, all the thugs, all these uh, unruly people to the religious elite at the time. And he's like, come over, man. We're going we're gonna to eat. We're going to get down. And the religious elite, and, and, and being there, passing by, seeing this, 
They look in, and the thing that they see is, man, why does he eat with these sinners and tax collectors? And then last week, Nick took us through the passage where John's disciples um, and the Pharisees are fasting, and some of the people came, and they started grilling Jesus, like, look, John's disciples are fasting, the Pharisees are fasting, how come your people aren't fasting? And so, once again, they're there, they're in the midst of where Jesus is, with, with basically trying to uh, trap him, set him up, find some type of confrontation or conspiracy to disprove who he was. And so that brings us to today's passage where you guessed it, there's going to be more scrutiny of Jesus and his disciples. So today we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 23 through 28, but first please join me in prayer. Father God, Lord, we are we're so grateful to be able to come here, Lord, and dive into your word. This beautiful, living, breathing word that you have provided for us so that we can know you and your son and what is expected of us. And so, Lord, I just pray for our hardened hearts in this time, Lord, that you, you will soften our hearts that you will silence any of the distraction, any of the, the voices from the enemy saying, telling us that, that you're not good enough, that this isn't you, that he's not speaking to you, Lord. And we will, we will look at ourselves through the, li- through the lenses of Jesus. We will look at ourselves and see that we are sinners saved by grace and that we need a Savior. And that, and that one was provided out of your grace and out of your mercy. So, Lord, I pray that as we go through today's uh, message, there will be no uh, uh, condemnation or, or uh, debilitating shame or guilt that we will look for this and that we can see ourselves for who we are. We can see ourselves where we're at and we can see that we want to change. We want to be changed from the heart, from the inside out. So, Lord, I just thank you because I know your Holy Spirit's here in your presence, Lord, and I just thank you and we acknowledge, Holy Spirit, that you are here. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice and your love towards us, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Maddox, you got me on these slides. I'm just going to read them off of the screen. Mark chapter 2, 23 through 28. He said, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not the man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That is God's word. So in our text today, we can see the scrutiny already. But today, the scrutiny is on the disciples of Jesus who are with him. These religious leaders, they're constantly around everywhere Jesus has been going early in Mark's gospel here. And it just seems like um, 
Jesus is never really getting the opportunity to uh, uh, have some time alone with his disciples. Wherever they go, whatever they're doing, we got the story of the religious elite, the Pharisees, are not far behind. And so today it's no different. You got Jesus and his disciples, and they're walking along these paths, and the disciples become hungry. A common theme that even the religious elite themselves have experienced, we all get hungry. And as they get hungry, they begin to uh, um, pluck some grain and eat it. They begin to eat to meet their need. But this is on the Sabbath. And the religious elite, they take offense now that they're going to come, and they're going to try and come after the disciples. And Jesus defends his disciples and addresses their current uh, concerns surrounding the Sabbath. Um, so first, we'll go into a little bit of background um, of the Sabbath. So we know that the Sabbath was instituted by God. It was a very good thing, and in the Old Testament, it got instituted for man's benefit. It was to be a commemoration of the fact that God rested on the seventh day from all of his labors of creation, but it was also for the benefit of man, for man to recuperate so that man could rest and be able to reflect on the goodness of God after all of his long labors. We see the importance of the uh, Sabbath observance in that it was embedded into the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse 10. Boom, he's on it. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you should not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is with you within your gates. So we see the importance of this. We see that it was instituted into the Ten Commandments. We understand the importance of this. The Israelites understood the importance of this very serious thing. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah um, 17, 21 through 27 records how God's promise to the judgment of the Israelites if they disobey or don't observe the Sabbath in the way that it was designed for them. When I put this into preaching mode, it like shifted all my text. So I'm like reading everything and then the other words at the end of the sentence, so... It's throwing me off. Good time. But Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, Take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath or bring it by the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out of your house on the Sabbath or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day as holy as I have commanded your fathers. Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffed their neck that they might not hear and receive instruction. But if you listen to me, declares the Lord, and bring in no burden by the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but keep the Sabbath day holy and do not work on it, then there shall enter by the gates of the city kings and princes who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their officials, the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this, shit, and this city shall be inhabited forever. And people shall come from the cities of Judah and the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, oh, back up one, from um, Shephelah, from the hill country and from Negbed, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and frankincense, and bringing thank offerings to the house of the Lord. 
But if you do not listen to me, to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to bear a burden and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the places of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. So he, in this text, we see that he's promising blessings if they're to keep the um, Sabbath holy, but he's also promising punishment if they do not. So I want us, as we read and we look into this text today, to remember that no matter what we see here, no matter what we say here, no matter what we see in this scripture, Jesus was never undermining or dismissing the importance of the Sabbath. He, as one who was born under the law, according to Galatians 4.4, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman and born under the law. He was one who came under still the old covenant, and he himself understood the importance of the Sabbath. He observed the Sabbath, but what we see in this text and throughout the gospel is that Jesus' concern is to address the way the religious leaders had perverted the Sabbath and the way that they had come to almost idolize it. Not only that, but in the way they approached other people in a judgmental and very critical spirit for not keeping the Mosaic law concerning the Sabbath. But instead, they really tightened the reins on him, uh, uh, squoze the clamps, because it's not just in keeping the Sabbath now. They really scrutinize everyone in keeping their own man-made traditions and interpretations concerning the Sabbath. And that's what Jesus is concerned with, addressing the heart from these religious leaders that are trying to hold people to their man-made traditions in, in an effort to guard the Sabbath and the whole law, for that matter, the religious leaders, they um, did what they saw as, as helpful, and they formed this hedge or this fence around the Sabbath as well. There was this oral tradition, this culture of legalism and self-righteousness, even concerning the Sabbath and multiple violations that these religious leaders had begun to put forward on people, and even to judge people in accordance with or accordance to their own man-made traditions. Um, some of the um, they they in a sense they added all of these things, all of these additional things beyond what God had prescribed. So um, I wanted to take a second. I read this and studying for this, and I just it, it was mind blowing. Some of the things that they had added. So I want to take a look at how uh, a twisted. The Sabbath itself had became with man-made rules that they had come up with. And so um, for us to see and know a little bit about how fanatical they were about the Sabbath, and we can understand this. So just so we know, uh, the word Sabbath comes from sabaton. It's the root verb, which means to cease or to stop. And the double beta or the double B in the word Sabbath is an intensified form of the word. So it's like complete cessation, complete stop. And it was God who defines, defined Sabbath in Genesis 2-3. Um, he completely, he ceased completely from the work of creation, and so the Sabbath came to refer to a day that the people would cease working as well. 
That's all the Old Testament say. It says you're simply not to work. It does give, doesn't give any particular detailed, minute prescriptions of all of these different ways to do that. It says you're not to work, you're to rest. It's a day to be of joy. It's a day made for man. It's a day of rest, recuperation, restoration, and worship. But the hypocritical Pharisees of the time and the scribes, they developed all these other kinds of things to make the Sabbath worse than any other day because of its unbelievable restraints that they had placed on it in, in uh, addition to uh, what God had initially set down. And so um, I was reading this from um, John MacArthur's website, and he quotes this man, and it says, Enderism in his classic work, The Life and Times of Jesus, the Messiah, has done some marvelous work in researching this and going back and digging it out of the Talmud. The Talmud comes after Christ sometime, but picks up and codifies all the laws that have long existed in Judaism. This, is, this gets a little crazy. Check these out. For example, you couldn't travel more than 3,000 feet on the Sabbath. Some would say that you couldn't go more than 1,999 steps. If you take that 2,000 step, you've now violated the Sabbath. Now, this would be from Friday when the sun goes down until Saturday night when the sun went back down. So the only way that you could go further than that is if you put some food 1,999 steps away on Friday before the Sabbath started so that once you got to that food, you could either get yourself another 1,999 steps to go further forward or to turn around and go back where you came from. Now... Whenever the streets were narrow, according to the Talmud, you could lay a piece of wood or piece of rope over the entrance of the street between the dwellings on each side. Then you could make the street like an entrance to a house, and you could go another 3,000 feet or 1,999 steps beyond that. Um, so it, it mentioned in here, by the way, in the Talmud, there are 24 chapters of Sabbath laws. There are 24 chapters of Sabbath laws, and one rabbi said he spent two and a half years studying one chapter to figure out all of the minute details and rules that were surrounded by, on the Sabbath. Things like, you could lift something up and put something down, but only from certain places. So you could lift it up in a public place and put it down in a private place, or you could lift it up in a private place, but you had to put it down in a public place. Or you could lift it up in a wide place, and then you had to put it down in a legally free place, and on and on and on. No burden could be carried that weighed more than a dried fig or half a fig carried two times. If you put an olive in your mouth and you, and you rejected it because it was bad, you could not put a whole olive in your mouth the next time because your mouth had tasted the pal palate of the bad olive. If you threw an object in the air and caught it with... Um, the other hand, it was sin. If you threw an object in the air and caught it with the same hand, you were good to go. If a person was in one place and he reached out his arm for food and the Sabbath overtook him, he would have to drop the food and not return his arm or he would be carrying a burden that would be sin. A tailor couldn't carry his needle. The scribe couldn't carry his pen. A pupil couldn't carry his books. No clothing could be examined unless you find a lice and inadvertently kill it. Wool couldn't be dyed. Nothing could be sold. Nothing could be bought. Nothing could be washed. A letter, could be sent. a letter couldn't be sent. Even if it was sent via a heathen, you couldn't still send it there. 
No fire could be lit. Cold water could be poured on warm. Warm could not be poured on cold. An egg could not be boiled, even if you put it in the sand. The sand in Israel would get so hot at times that you could put an egg in it and boil the sand, but not on the, or boil the egg, but not on the Sabbath. That was not allowed. You could not bathe for fear that the water that fell off your body would somehow cleanse the floor, and that would be work. If, if a candle was lit, if a candle was lit, you could put it out. If it wasn't lit, you couldn't light it. Chairs could be moved. Chairs couldn't be moved because they might make a rut. Women couldn't look into a glass or a mirror because they might find a white hair and be tempted to pull it out. Women couldn't wear jewelry because jewelry weighs more than a dried fig. A radish couldn't be left in salt because that would make it a pickle, and that's work. No more grain could be picked, pickled than you could put in a lamb's mouth, and it goes on and on and on. There are laws about wine, milk, honey, spitting, writing, getting dirt off your clothes. You could only use enough ink for two letters. No two written letters, but two alphabetic letters. You'd have a wad in your ear, but you wouldn't put false teeth in your mouth. Was so what was forbidden? What are some of the other things? Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, sifting, grinding, kneading, baking, washing wool, beating wool, dyeing wool, spinning wool, putting a weaver's beam, making threads, weaving threads, separating threads, making a knot, untying a knot, sewing two stitches, and on and on and on. You talk about a heavy laden system of rules that were set in place that uh, of something that was once good has now became this oppressive it was unscripturable and it was unscriptural and horribly ungodly and it was brutally unkind so now that we have that background let's look at the story and the sabbath incident as it happened um so like I said, it happened, they were passing through the grain fields, it was on the Sabbath day, they started to pick some grain to eat it, and they became hungry. And that's what they were looking for. They were looking with that fine tooth comb, they were waiting to see something that they could do, and they were, I, I just see them off in the corner, kind of weird and creepy, and like, ha, ah, there it is. We got them again this time. He kind of flipped it on us the last two times and kind of put us back in our place, but we got them this time. They're picking grain. They're working. They said that's the key. It's the Sabbath incident. And so, you know, we like we said, they're, they're following around. They, they approached him. And so <laughs> to think about this, they were probably staying back a little bit and, and not really counting Jesus' steps to see if it got to 1,999 steps, right? Because that's all that's allowed because it's the Sabbath. But if they're following him along, they're going 1,999 steps or whatever themselves. So they weren't really looking at that because they were breaking the Sabbath as well. But they weren't looking at themselves. They were looking at Jesus and his disciples, and they seen them begin to pick grain. I think in our Christian walk, there are two very important principles that we can learn from Jesus in this passage. And the first principle that I would say that we can see would be the principle of truth. Because we'll see here in a minute, we'll see Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees in that moment, and we can see how he responds. We have these Pharisees trying to trap him and his disciples with their twisted interpretations of the law. And what does Jesus do? He appeals to them. 
He appeals to them through the truth of the Holy Scriptures, the Scriptures that they are very well versed with. He doesn't appeal to them under the cloak of emotions or feelings at the time and the moment, which honestly is, is a bit commendable because if, if I had these guys bearing down on me and my friends, I'm going to safe to say I'm probably going to have an emotional response in that moment. Jesus appeals to them through the truth of the Scriptures. So the Pharisees' real question, the real underlying question is, why do you and your disciples live out this overt, open defiance of our religion? Why do you challenge our religion? Why do you challenge our authority? It's an implied threat to them. They feel threatened. It's not a legitimate question, and they don't want an answer. It's a scornful indictment implying a threat. Excuse me. And so Jesus responds with this scriptural illustration. In verse 25, he said to them, and I think he says this a lot. We see this in scripture. He says this quite a bit. He says, have you never read? There's nothing in the Old Testament that these guys haven't read. But he says that a lot. You'll find it through all the synoptic gospels. Have you never read? Do you not understand? Do you not know the scriptures? In a sense, probably taking a shot at him. I would. But they did read, and they knew the scriptures, but they read without any understanding because they were, uh, uh, their view was blurred by their own traditions and things that they carried out. So he said, did you not ever read the story about David, what he did when he was in need? He was hungry, he and his companions. And this is the story of David. It's in 1 Samuel 21. Um, we're not going to uh, go there and dive into all that. You can read it yourself. But David was fleeing south from Gibeah because Saul was after him to kill him. Saul wanted to kill him. He came, according to 1 Samuel 21.1, to Nob. Nob is about a mile north of Jerusalem, and that's where the tabernacle was uh, located. He had no food, and him and those traveling with him were hungry. There he met a priest named Amalek, and he asked the priest for some food. He's fleeing for his life. They're hungry. Death is intimate. They're, Saul has sent people to kill him. They are after him. And he stops, and he asks him for five loaves of bread. But he was told by the priest at the time that there's no bread available. Verse 4 of 1 Samuel 21 says, And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand. He says, I, I don't have any bread. But he said, interestingly, this press, priest Amalek, there, he, he tells him, there's holy bread. You have the holy bread that is here. And so um, he says, yeah, we have the holy bread. And basically he tells him, if the men that are with you have kept themselves clean, then you can have the holy bread. If they've kept themselves from women, you can have the holy bread. I'm willing to let you have the holy bread if your men have been holy. And David confirmed in verse 5 that they were holy, and in that sense they were clean. And the priest understood what anybody logically would understand. It's, it's common sense. Nothing is as valuable as a life. Just like in this passage, there was an immediate need. They were hungry. They needed to eat. But the Pharisees were putting their policies, their traditions, and, and their uh, beliefs over the needs of people. 
So one of the things I kind of hear a lot in inviting people to church and asking them if they would like to uh, come join us at church sometimes is, I feel like I don't really fit in with all the people that, that, that church people that regularly attend church. And so now I know from, from our church body and those of us that are here I don't think anyone would ever walk in and feel like they don't fit in from us hammering on them with Old Testament rituals, and maybe a couple of you guys might, but for the most part, <laughs> yeah, do that. That's what that office we're building is for. So, but I think it could be... Um, It can be a real similar type of situation if we find ourselves going through our routines and our traditions out of just that, out of just routine, because it's something we do. Like, for example, um, standing and singing songs, singing praise to God. Someone could walk in for the very first time and they've, ne they've never been in a church before and if we have a whole row of people standing there like zombies, mouthing words that they've never taken the time to, to really let hit their heart and, and understand what they mean and what they're, what they're saying, that can be awkward. There's times where it's during worship, and I look over at my wife, and she's, she's got her eyes closed, she's got her hand raised high, and there's just this smile of joy on her face. And in that moment, wherever I was at, whatever crazy Chris stuff was dealing with in my head, in that moment, and seeing that joy and worship, that genuine joy and worship on her face, it draws me out of where I was and draws me back to worshiping God. It's that pure, genuine love that seeing that on her face, not because it's a tradition or a routine, that pure, genuine love of God can help people put their guard down and help them approach that same space of praise and worship that we're in. And so that can bring us into um, our second principle that we can learn from this text. So the first principle was to appeal to others from truth from the truth of the scriptures. It's the only undeniable, unbreakable truth that we have in our, world today, in our world today is the truth of God's word. That was the first one. The second would be to appeal to them from a place of love. I mean, really, we should never, we should never strive to, to, or we should never um, be tempted to drift away and be pulled away from uh, the newest and greatest commandment that Jesus gave. He says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Can you click me to the next one, Maddox? The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other greater commandment than these. Love God and love others. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
There is no greater commandment than these. Let us never as a body drift so far into our uh, traditions and policies and principles that we drift away from this command. People are messy. We get that. We know that. We understand that. But we should never put our policies, our practices, our routines, and our traditions ahead of loving God and loving others. So, trust me, this can be tricky at times. Um, Nick and Tony and I often talk in our Sunday morning um, meetings together how there are things that have such a thin line of being one thing and then, and then drifting into another. If you're alive, if you're paying attention, if you have a pulse, you know this. There are so many things that have a thin line from going from one thing, a good thing, a God thing, into a sin thing, or into our own thing. For, um, like, boundaries can be one of them. There's that thin line of having this balance and having boundaries set with someone, and the next thing you know, these boundaries are more about you, and they turn into this prideful thing, and you're just shutting everyone out and letting no one in because I set a boundary. For example, um, pastoral care. In, in shepherding this church, it is, it is work. The work of us pastors sometimes never ends. We see it in Scripture. In here, we've looked at it today, that we are to have a day of Sabbath, a day of rest, and it is so important. But out of love, I would never put a true need of any one of you over the, the um, call of having this day of rest. A phone call if someone was sick, there was an accident, something was going on. I would never put this policy above loving God and loving you in that time. But it's a thin line. Because you're going to call me with the need, and it's going to be, I need some help patching this hole in my drywall. I need some help moving this mattress from my house to my daughter's house. And that's where that thin line could be crossed. There are those times where um, I'm, gonna say, I'm resting in the Lord with my family today. But it's something I'd be glad to see if someone else will do for me. <laughs> Give me a minute. There are even, even in times in uh, extended Sabbath through um, sabbaticals where we come and we get this rest and rejuvenation in the Lord but if God places a person or situation before us, it is always love God, love others first, policies and practices second. Failure to put others ahead of ourselves can be disguised as this self-care and this self-love, but it's really the disguise of pride hiding its ugly face under the disguise of self-care. There are even things that can be good gifts of God that we experience that may have some scriptural merit to us that can turn into sinful actions. Men, how about working and providing for our families? Scriptural? Biblical? Absolutely. We can take that biblical thing and we become so entranced with working our way up the public ladder where we're no longer at home, spiritually leading our families and nurturing our families so that good thing that that biblical command to work and care for our families has now became a sinful thing that we turn to ladies children right children are a beautiful glorious gift from god 
I can promise you that God would never give us a good gift from him that would hinder us from being involved in and serving in our covenant community of believers. Maria and I experienced this firsthand. We had two crazy kids stacked up back to back, and it easily became an excuse for us to pull back from areas and things that we were doing of loving God and loving others and being a part of this church. Because, man, it's crazy. Two screaming boys or whatever. And so the first reaction was we took these, these beautiful gifts from God, these beautiful little boys, and they now became an excuse for us to pull back and pull away and not serve you guys and come alongside of you guys in the ways that we were before. So what all it means is service to the church, being part of this community of believers, it had to look a little different. It had to be maybe she went into this one thing and I was at home with the kids. Or, or I would go and she was at home with the kids. We just had to change what it looked like. So my question for you today, for you to look at yourself and ask yourself is, what policy, what practice, what routine, what regimen that you have in your life, what traditions that you stick to are getting in the way of you loving God and loving others. I think today's passage is a great warning for us to check our hearts, excuse me, and ask ourselves, man, do I have some, some Pharisee tendencies, some Pharisaic tendencies? Do I let performance of certain practices creep into my life where others are put off by my ritualistic boundaries? If that may be the case now, and you can relate to that, Maybe if that was the case in the past and, and it's trying to creep back up and come through or if it's something that's brewing up inside of you and it might not even hit you yet and you don't even see it coming. I, I think that there's an easy fix for us for that. Look to the cross. I don't mean that in some cliche bumper sticker statement type of thing. Look to the cross. I mean, look to the cross, the cross that once had a bloody, beaten body nailed to it, a bloody, beaten body hanging from this piece of wood, splintered, pain, agony. Now remember, that body is of an innocent man, an innocent man paying the price for your rebellion. He is up there. He was taking your punishment a punishment that you rightly deserved. It would have been very easy for Jesus to invoke some, some policy, some practice, some reason why he shouldn't have been nailed to that cross. But read in Scripture. He never uttered the words, it's not my problem, God. They made their bed. They can lie in it. He never said, sorry, it's the Sabbath. It's my day of rest. I'm not going to be sacrificed for the sins of the world today. He never said, I'm the Son of God. I am Jesus. I am above this type of service. Never. He took our place. He said, I love you, Father, and I love them. So next time God places a person before you, don't elevate your worth um, above the need of that person and on the flip side, I would say don't lower your worth and say, I'm not the one for this. 
I'm not the one for this uh, uh, need in the church. I'm not the one that this person needs right now. That, that type of thing that they're asking, that's for those elite Christians. There are no elite Christians. There are only sinners saved by grace who are called to love God and love others. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we just thank you. We thank you that we are those sinners and we were saved by your grace. We thank you that you took us from wherever we were, whatever rebellion we were doing, and you put someone on our paths, a seed was planted, and that has grown into a love for Jesus, a love for you in understanding who you are and the price that was paid and the role that we played in that price. So God, I just pray that as we uh, as we continue to look through the book of Mark and we continue to uh, read these scriptures, that we will place ourselves into these situations. We will look at the scriptures and say, am I being that? Is that something I struggle with? And that we will take that to you in prayer. And sometimes these things that rear up are ugly and we'll, we'll know that we are part of a body of believers who are all the same thing, sinners saved by grace. And that we will feel open and comfortable and powerful enough to come to our brothers and sisters in Christ and our other believers here in this building and share with them the struggles that we're facing. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. And it's in your beautiful name I pray. Amen.